This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Very nearly your favorite podcast. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And we are here under duress. Not that we've been kidnapped, but we're both pretty shattered. So <laughs> expect from today's show... Guffs galore as we try to hold sentences together, <laughs> as we try to remember what we're talking about. Andy, why are you so darn tired this week? I is tired because we has been busy, and I've not. not I, it feels like I've not really had much downtime from work because my shift patterns have been a bit, a bit crazy and wacky. Yeah, I've, I've not had time to rest. We had a lot of things going on, but mostly there's been um, obviously glass onion. Yeah, we're uh, going to talk about later, aren't we? We'll talk about later. Spoiler-free. It's, spoiler it's had a one-week exclusive. Oh, is it only one cinemas. week? Yep. It oh, comes, that... off, comes off after Tuesday. Oh, really? Oh, I don't think I'm going to get a chance to see it in, in the cinema. But I've got a feeling, that, and we've talked about this, me and the missus, is that it's going to be our Christmas Day film. Yeah. Uh, it, it lands on Netflix on the 23rd, so it's ideal for Christmas. And, yeah, I'll talk about it later. I'll give my opinion on the film later um in the reviews but yeah one week only so obviously with it being promoted for only one week only and that's it internationally it's all around the world it's only got that this one week everyone's obviously flooding to see it so even though it opened on a wednesday which normally wednesdays are quite soft opens no that was busy and that stayed busy and then in the uk we've also had matilda open and we've been saying about this for months that this is going to do great in the uk because it's a beloved Roald Dahl story it's a very british thing it's the musical version with Tim Minchin, who's beloved by the British public. And it, it has hit the ground, certainly running. In fact, it's hit the ground full sprint. And I think this is, this is one of the films that will run all the way through Christmas. Sadly, I've not had a chance to see it yet, so I'm not reviewing it this week. I'm hoping to see it in time okay. to review for next week's show. Um, I do want to see it, but it's finding time. I've hardly found time to basically do anything. I've been getting in from work and just exhausted and then just flopping on the yeah. couch. Me too. It's been a tough work week that I'm not going to go into, but it has just been a, a, a dreadfully tough week. But uh, we played a show last night, a great show in Rotherham at a newish venue, which was one of the most bizarre venues I've ever played. It's a, an actual brewery with a, a stage in it and a bar. So all around you, it looked like a set from a movie. You've got <laughs> the, the huge... Uh, big uh, uh, canisters for, for for making ale with and uh, a, a fairly big stage plonked <laughs> to the side. And I kind of went in and went, oh, this is going to be unusual, thinking the sound's going to be terrible and all that. And it was fabulous. It was a really, really great show. Not not a great turnout, but the turnout that was there were, were very vocal, very much into it, very thoroughly receptive. enjoyed themselves. Yeah, and that's all, you know, it doesn't matter. You can play to 100 people who kind of are okay about it, or you can play to 30 people who are just having a great time. Yeah. I'd rather play to 30 people having a great time. And we had a great time. And uh, But it was a, a late finish, late getting home. And of course, when you've done, and you remember this from when you were working away, you get in, you get home, and your body just tries to adjust yeah. uh, and, and do the come down. And the, the come down just wasn't happening when I got in last night. So made myself something to eat and, and had a drink. And, and I was awake for another hour before slipping into the world of dreams. <laughs> slipping and sliding 
fighting it. Well, you're doing that usually. I, I do this quite often when I'm sat in the early hours of the morning, like having a snack, watching something on TV. And I can feel myself starting to fall asleep, but I'm refusing to go to sleep because I'm like, I want to watch this. I'm not going to. And then you realize you just missed five minutes because you nodded off. And then it's like, yeah, no, yeah. no, I'm still not tired. I can wake up. And then you just drift. By way, I've done that before now while I was watching something. And because of the way that um, Amazon Prime and Netflix then show the next episode at the end and so on, when I finally <laughs> woke up, five episodes had gone by me. And it's just like, oh, now I don't know where I was up to. <laughs> Yeah, I had all intentions of, uh, of finishing the last episode of Disney Plus's The Old Man, which uh, I, I really liked. It's very slow. It's very meticulous. Reminds me a little bit of nobody to a degree. But I have enjoyed it because I'm a massive Jeff yeah. Bridges fan. Uh, someone I've, I've liked all the way through his career. But I got to the point I couldn't, I couldn't make it. Our US listeners out there will have been celebrating Thanksgiving this past week. Oh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. For the rest of the world, that, that means uh, Black Friday deals have been hit. Have you took advantage of any Black Friday deals this year? Uh, no, no, no. I had a quick look. We need a couple of household items. Uh, it's this time of year when household items decide to commit uh, Harry Carry, I've noticed, throw themselves to the mercy of uh, everyone. So we've just bought a new washing machine. We've got a new microwave to buy. We had a look on Black Friday. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah, I couldn't see the deals, to be honest. Well, the bizarre one for me is um, Amazon had a promoted post on Facebook, as it does, because every third post on Facebook now is a promoted post from someone. And it had a picture of the Sega Mega Drive Mini with a Black Friday deal. I was like, oh, I've been looking for one of them. Clicked on it. £249. No chance. That's not a deal. That's more expensive than it normally retails for. So it was just like, no, no, your algorithm's wrong or you're just scamming us. Um, I did take advantage of BT's Black Friday offers because uh, even though I'd only recently, two months ago, I mean, I talked about it on the show that I'd upgraded to full fiber and renewed my contract. Um, they had another deal where you, if you get your Netflix, et cetera, through BT, you get it at half price. So okay, even if you're already a subscriber to one of the services, you can transfer it across. And it's basically BT pay for the account. You still manage it in the same way by going to the, like the Netflix, BritBox, et cetera, websites. So I was like, okay, I'll take, have a look if we can do this. Oh, yeah, it's um, even if you're currently under contract, you just renew your contract. It's like, okay. And as I did that, it was like, you're currently on full fiber 150. For one pound more in a month, you can have full fiber 900. I was like, oh, hey, what? Go Ooh, on then. I have seen that one. Um, so I've signed up for that as well. And it was just one of them. It st just started a spiral with BT of like, um, oh, you've also got one of these old TV boxes. And we've got these new ones, which are Bluetooth enabled. Would you like one of them? It's like, uh, yeah, go on. It's turned out really beneficial. I've now got the best kit in the house with a speed. And I did a speed test after it went live. And I was getting download speeds of over 700. That's good. It's, I've, I've it's basically things, da things download before I even think about downloading, and that's how fast it is. Oh, that's good. It's uh, <laughs> AI-orientated. It's marvellous. Uh, that's the only deal that I properly take advantage of. I did take advantage of the PlayStation deal earlier this month, which you already mentioned on the show because I said I picked up yeah. Last of Us Part 2. Uh, You've not started playing yet, I'm assuming. Uh, I have. I've, I've put about an hour and a half into it so far. Um, it's the only thing that I managed to find time for because I'm determined not to have it just sat there. I would say gathering dust, but it's bought digitally, so it's it, it can't gather. It's gathering virtual gathering static. micro dust. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm liking what I'm the feel of it so far. I'm liking the the, um, the slow setup 
Um, this It'll introduction of characters and um, yeah, I've I've heard that it's got a very shocking twist in it. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get to it because I do think will. I will be playing. You'll thank this. you'll thank us all for it. I've had a had a bit of a play on Miles Morales. <laughs> thoroughly enjoying it. Not as much time as I'd like. Just a good sort of half an hour here and there, uh, just to clear my mind after, as I said, pretty crappy week. Yeah. But you don't want to hear about our crappy week. Oh, what we want you want to do is hear about our Mastodon challenge. Yes, this is our very, very first Mastodon challenge. So you remember when we did the Twitter challenges? We'd get it sounds like a game, doesn't it? <laughs> the Mastodon yeah. challenge. When we did the Twitter challenges, we got very sporadic responses. Sometimes only got two people responding. Occasionally, we get like five people. Very first Mastodon challenge, and I've already had a good bit of interaction. Fantastic. What we asked was, what TV show that was cancelled would you most like to see revived? And I added in, I'm going to assume that Firefly is a given. So are there any others that you want to see brought back, even if just for a final season to tie things up? Because there's loads of shows. I mean, more recently, Westworld, we've said, why can't you yeah. just bring that back for one final season? Because that's all it needs. We've had the responses that we've had. I mean, we had Steve Hansen, who has been stung so many times on Netflix. But saying that, after watching Monday's season finale of Walking Dead, I wish I'd given up on that years ago. I'm with you there, man. Uh, I did give up on Walking Dead round about season eight. I think I got halfway into eight. And as much as I love the graphic novel, and I loved that show when it started, everything from season five onwards just felt repetitive and bland. I, I stayed with it. I've not watched the final season, to be honest. I think I'm a, I've, I've just got so much, Andy. So, so yeah. much to catch up on. Ziggy Stardust, who's um, at Aladdin, at Aladdin Sane. He's already my favourite <laughs> listener, other than the other favourite listeners that we've got. Uh, threw out quite a selection. Torchwood. Torchwood, I, I kind of have that on my radar as well, that I'd like it to come back, but not like it was when it finished. Yeah. That final season was very, very weak. But if they can do the one, one where like... people couldn't die, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, if they can do something like the... Uh, the, the season that ran daily on BBC. I can't remember what, what it was called, but that was really tense, exciting drama and it's a unique way of doing it. Um, but yeah, definitely there for Torchwood. Blake Seven, come on. Yeah, I'm up for that's that. That's got to be a great suggestion. I think we've mentioned that on the show at some points that we'd love to see it given a Battlestar Galactica kind of budget and style. Sky were talking about it yeah, quite seriously with Idris Elba in the role of Blake and it came to nothing. Oh, it's it's definitely something that I mean. My revisit of it last year, uh, thanks to good old Britbox, opened my eyes again to how great the storytelling was in it. The characters were all very grey areas. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I loved it about was, it. It was kind of the dirty dozen in space, but it was uh, um, yeah, it was a great series and and worth revisiting. I think you could do a either a sequel or a total reboot to it. Yeah, either way would work. Misfits. Misfits. Uh, Channel 4. Oh, show yeah, yeah. I never it. really got into Misfits. I loved it. I wasn't, A lot of people did. It was one that I wasn't sure that I was going to like when I saw it advertised. Like, yeah, I'll check it out. And I, I love the whole, like, alternate take on people with superpowers being a bunch of juvenile delinquents. Great cast in it. And even when some of the original cast left after the third series, the new cast that they brought in made it work for its own thing. And yeah, you fell in love with the new characters that were brought in just as much as you did on the first few. I'd happily see another series of Misfits. I don't think it's one of them that I'd like to see done to death, but I think it'd be interesting to do a, a little one-season revival. Um, another companion piece to life on Mars. Since Ashes to Ashes sucked arse. 
<laughs> I wouldn't say sucked ass. It just was a huge come down after the brilliance of the two seasons of Life on Mars. What else did we get? Who else um, got in touch? Well, Ziggy also threw in Whitechapel, which I've never seen. Silk, no, I've heard good things. Seen. A new season of Shameless with the original lineup. And, and yeah, I said that alongside agreeing with most of them, I'd also like to see Sapphire and Steel. Which I was just about to say, I think Sapphire and Steel would be on my list. Uh, you could do a reboot, yeah, or you could do a sequel to it. Um, clearly not with McCallum or Joanna Lumley, but yeah. they could appear in it quite easily. So yeah, Sapphire and Steel. Uh, Black Books got thrown out by Ziggy as well as like an afterthought, and oh, I loved Black Books. It was so funny. Yes, sitcom revivals is something that's happening quite frequently. So it'd be interesting to see a Black Books. Um, sardonic take on a sitcom revival. Uh, Nigel M, who's at Stoves throughout, and this was a great suggestion. I know you never saw it, but I loved the two seasons. The BBC zombie series In the Flesh. Heard good things about it, never saw it. It was such a good take on the zombie thing because it was also all about identity politics and like like political aspects. And it worked to treat as like the zombies have got intelligence again, but it was used in the, as like to tackle racism, discrimination, etc. Marvellous. Um, that reminded me of another one that I wanted to throw out, which was the BBC series The Fades. Yeah, again, never saw it. Heard heard very good good things about it. With that, that was the that was the TV show that introduced me to the brilliance of Daniel Kaluuya, and it, it's yeah, it makes me so happy to see him now be a big star for Hollywood. Seeing how he started off so well with the uh, the OA was thrown out by Mevs Mays, as along with American Vandal. Uh, never seen American Vandal, but the OA is definitely Never seen something. either of those shows. John, who's UK film nerd, gave us Space Above and Beyond. Oh, I like that. I did like that. Uh, as, as I said, several characters could possibly be dead after, and we never found out. It'd be a great thing to revive. Carnivale was thrown out by, thrown out by David, a.k.a. at Ratamankyu. Um, I didn't watch Carnival. Carnivale. Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good series. It was... Uh... Uh, one of the first sort of HBO uh, supernatural shows, mm. and it, it was a, it was a great series. Yeah, very well thought out. I would not, I would not have remembered that. But that that one came out round about that early two thousands era, which then reminded me again of more shows. And this is yeah, basically anything that Brian Fuller had ever put out. But Dead Like Me, I'd love to see come back. Yeah, and um, Pushing Daisies, definitely Pushing Daisies, and uh, finally Noni who is uh, Noni3234, Lovecraft Country. It's a recent cancellation. Yeah, it was. Very good. I remember that when we were talking about Lovecraft Country, that we both kind of felt that it would be brilliant on one episode, and then the next episode would be a bit meandering, then brilliant, mm. and then meandering. But as a yeah. whole, the season worked so well as a result uh, that you know once you get to the end of it, it's like, actually, even those like meandering episodes now feel like they had more importance. Uh, it's a great rewatch. So if you've not rewatched it yet, go back and rewatch. And if you've never watched Lovecraft Country, yes, watch it, and you can join in the legions of us who want another season and have been told no. Uh, I was going to throw in Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip, uh, which was a fantastically written uh, Aaron Sorkin series, uh, Freaks and Geeks. But it'd have Ooh, to be a, a new series. It would have to be a new bunch of kids because clearly the the, the original cast are far too old now. But I uh, absolutely loved it. And there was a series called Flash Forward, yeah. which only ran for one season back, I think, in about two thousand and ten. And I'd like to see how how that resolved. That was a that was a great. What series. a great concept so that was! Yeah, that was, was that was uh, so good. 
everyone blacked out, didn't they? There's so many so shows many. that should come back. I mean, we've got we've got the revival of Quantum Leap, which is pretty good. Uh, it's still not arrived in the UK. Eventually it will, and everyone deserves to watch it. But it, it annoys me that all these great shows get cancelled, and yet we're on to, what, season 270 of the Cardassians or something. <laughs> we don't need banality in our lives. We want quality, and so many good quality shows have been dropped unnecessarily. Uh, or just, like, like I said, even just for a mini-series to close off the threads that have been left hanging. Yeah. That's all that we ask uh, for. If, if Netflix are listening, just, just follow our list. Yeah. I'm going to throw in this week's Mastodon Challenge. I like saying that. Mastodon. I like, I like those a Mastodon, Mastodon Challenge. We need challenge. a song. <laughs> yeah, we need to put that to music. So uh, this week's Mastodon Challenge is, are there any seasonal films that you go to that aren't Christmas films? Because we're talking about Knives Out later in the show. But are there films that you watch because you watched them as a kid? You've grown up with them. They feel are they feel like a part of the a Christmas tradition film. for you. Yeah. yeah, but not necessarily Christmas films. Are are films that reunite you with with the holiday season? Let us know on Mastodon. I mentioned all. I mentioned my one when we covered uh, the film as a deep dive, and that's Back to the Future. Back to the Future for me is every Christmas day. I'm trying to think now. I just said that. I'm trying to think of films that I that remind me. <laughs> Well, you've got a week to think. Yeah, so, yeah, I've got a week to think. No I'll doubt, think. I'll come back with a list again next week because uh, <laughs> as more and more films that I always watch over the festive week spring to mind. I mean, there's got to got to be there's got to be Live and Let Die in there because that was always on on Boxing Day. <laughs> yeah, we've got a, a special Christmas show that we've been debating, which we will talk about very soon. Yes, but before of that, but before all of that, we've got a show to talk about. And what do we got on this week's show? Well, we've got the news. And we've got the box office. We've got a deep dive into adaptations. Well, three of our favourite adaptations of A Christmas Carol. Because when this show goes out, it's going to be the 1st of December, baby. Open the advent calendar. We have a plethora of reviews, which include... I've got a backlog of reviews. So this week, I'll be talking about Disenchanted that landed on Disney Plus last week. I'll also be talking about Reef Stalked that I intended to talk about last week, but I was still a bit dismayed. And also the new release that by the time this show goes out, you'll have missed and you'll have to wait until the end of December. That's Glass Onion. We're both going to be talking or offering our points of view of the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. But before any of that, we've got the news. So let's start off. With the box office. And I'm guessing after uh, Thanksgiving in the US that Black Panther were candor forever. A little bird has told me that it's past the $600 million worldwide mark. Where does that leave us internationally and in the UK for the latest Marvel feature? So, yes, Black Panther took the top spot again for another weekend in the US. With it being Thanksgiving weekend, there was an expected surge in admissions with it increasing on the previous week's totals for the Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Taking $45.6 million over this weekend, the film is now worldwide up to $676 million. Strange World, the new animated offering from Disney, opened in second place with $12.2 million, a film that should have done much more, but the marketing has clearly let it down. So we said last week when it came to Strange World that there hadn't been much in the way of promotion. I've not seen it but the reviews have been very good for it. Yeah. So 
why hasn't it found an audience? Is it is it getting to the point that we know that's going to be a Christmas release on Disney Plus, or that it just didn't tickle the audience's fancy? Uh, well, the cynic in me thinks it's been a deliberate strategy by Disney because they want that they've been so focused on Disney Plus. And later in the news, will there be a bit of talk about um, the shuffles that are going on in Disney as a result of their recent strategies? The marketing was terrible. The first trailers didn't sell it. The li- most recent trailer looked great. But by that point, people have been turned off by the name of it. It's like, eh, not bothered, not bothered. It's been very light on its marketing. It's not been all over, like, you know, social media feeds. It's not been all over TV spots. It's just dropped out there. And I do think that it's because, particularly with animated movies, Disney have kind of been going, uh, we want this for the streaming service. Oh, are we committed to a cinema release? let's put as little behind it as possible so we can just get it onto the streaming service. I think that this film, could, looking at the critics' reviews, I've not had a chance to see it myself yet. I do want to see it because I've heard a few of the members of the staff who've watched it. Yeah. I've said well, that they thoroughly good. enjoyed it. It's just not been sold right. So let's see. Let's see what happens in the future of Disney. Netflix might not want to talk about it, but Glass Onion is doing pretty good at the box office. It only opened on about 690 screens across the U- US this weekend, but it still took 9.4 million. It was averaging 19,000 per theatre over the five-day weekend, which is higher than any other film. Over its total five days, because it opened on the Wednesday, it's up to 13.4 million. How much it could have made if it had gone for a saturation across all cinemas? Well, that's going to be the subject of some discussion. In fourth place, there's Devotion, opening with 5.9 million, and The Menu holds into fifth place with 5.5 million to round out the top five. Here in the UK, and it's no real shock for those of us who've been paying attention to this film over the past few weeks, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Music shoots straight into the top spot with 4.1 million taken at the box office this weekend. The story of Matilda is one of the most beloved of Roald Dahl's tales. And it was always going to be a huge success in the UK, hence it opening earlier in the UK than the rest of the world, because it's a very British feel film and it's drawing in those family audiences in droves. Black Panther, therefore, has dropped down into second place. It's taken another 2.7 million added to its total. Still a strong result. It's up to 27 million in the UK alone, but its time has come. Matilda has knocked it out. Strange World opens in third place with 717,000. The Menu in fourth place with 429,000. And She Said opens with 349,000. There's no figures tracked for Glass Onion for the UK. The figures in the US were only reported via Box Office Mojo. So we don't know how well it's performed. But I know from experience this weekend it pretty much should have been one of the top films. If this had been a wider distribution, this could have been a huge blockbuster. We remember that the first film really opened really strongly. It did 41 million in its first five days. So why Netflix don't want to report the figures is, it's a bit of a conundrum. Is it that they don't want to be shown that they should be releasing these things on the big screen rather than going straight to streaming? And how much money they're losing? Or are they just trying to be sneakily deceptive? we don't know, but you know, it's it's not got a wide release. I know from working in a cinema how busy it's been, and it's been our busiest film pretty much this weekend. This could have been a much bigger. This could have made a ton of money for Netflix, but especially one week, keeping in mind how much they've spent on this. 
because yeah. isn't isn't it facts that both Daniel Craig, the producer, and Ryan Johnson are going to make like six million dollars each out of uh, out of this franchise? Um, there's been multiple reports. Some have said up to fifty million they were offered each to come back to it, uh, but apparently it was uh, the second and third Knives Out films were both budgeted for around two hundred million. When the first one was made wow. on a forty million budget with the extra money being all to incentivize uh, the producer, director, and star to stick around for more films. Yeah, that'd incentivize me, honestly. Give me 50 million and I'll, I'll, I'll star in 10 of them. <laughs> Whether people would watch them would be a different matter. But yeah, people have been watching Glass Onion, despite what the box office says. Obviously, Netflix wanted this to be an exclusive for their streaming service to like get people to sign up and stick around over the Christmas period. So you can kind of understand why they don't want to make it a wider release. But it, it's one of them that we're always going to wonder exactly how much money it could have made if it got a wide distribution and more than just one week, because what a great start it's been. Um, so pulling off from the box office and what I discussed about something happening at Disney. This week, the CEO switched again at Disney. Now, you remember that earlier this year... Kind of switched. Kind of switched. Earlier this year, Bob Iger, who'd been the CEO there and led them to great success through all the launch of the Disney Plus brand, etc. He stepped down uh, from the role and basically just took a, like a, a... He just took a board kind of deal. And he was replaced by Bob Chapek. Well, Chapek is out and Iger is back for at least three years. Mm. Straight away... Iger has decided that he's not taking things slow. He's already sent a memo out to Disney staffers announcing a restructuring at the media giants that will begin in the coming weeks. And as part of that, Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution, DMED, Chairman Kareem Daniel will be stepping down as well. Daniel was CEO Bob Chapek's top lieutenant, and Chapek had reorganized the structure under a DMED banner, which had put a greater emphasis on Disney's streaming offerings. Uh, But that's all being shifted now. Iger's said that he's teamed up with four top executives to begin on a new structure that puts more decision-making back in the hands of our creative teams and rationalizes costs. Uh, According to the Wall Street Journal, Iger says that prices at the Mouse House theme parks have become too steep, especially for middle-class families. So he wants to lower costs to make it more appealing to the mass audience and that Chapek focused on Disney's streaming business to the detriment of the company's theme parks and cable television divisions, along with other sources of revenue for Disney, i.e. box office. The focus has been, he's stepped in, kicked Chapek out, because he sees that streaming shouldn't be the prime focus. They should be using that as an additional revenue stream, not the prime focus. So all this thing that we talked about on the box office rundown of how Strange World hasn't been marketed and we feel that it might be a deliberate thing because they want to push it to streaming. That's because of Chapek's methodology. It seems that Chapek was deliberately doing things. Lightyear was poorly marketed. Look, You just have to look over the past year. There's been so much poor marketing. And now we've got to the situation that even your big blockbusters that should be doing repeat business, like your Marvel films, are dropping off significantly because people are expecting it to land on streaming in a few weeks. The report also says that the board reportedly considered replacing Chapek following his bungled response to the Florida state government's controversial parental rights in education le- legislation because he uh, he struck the news on that week. Yes. Iger's return has been largely received very positively by Disney employees, Wall Street analysts and 
others within the industry. I mean, working within the cinema industry, I smiled when I read this news. When I read that Iger was coming back, I was like, yes. And I want, I don't want to see Disney just become all about what's going on streaming this week. As much as I love Disney Plus as a streaming service, it shouldn't be what it's all about. Let's see if Iger can get them back up for next year in particular to really be the ones who are churning the money. He's returning and he wants to get all these changes in place within the next few weeks because clearly in a few weeks' time, there's one of their biggest films of the year coming out and they can't fumble with this one. And that's Avatar. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, We talked about Avatar last week and we pointed out some of the issues that seem to be surrounding it. The fact that it's not tracking particularly well. The fact that James Cameron has decided how he could end the franchise on the third film rather than the several film that was yeah. uh, originally expected. So we'll wait and see to see how that goes. But as we've both said, I think the apprehension for Avatar is there, but I don't think it's going to set the world on fire. Yeah. Um, this week, with regards Avatar, Cameron in an interview has said that it effectively needs to take over $2 billion in order to profit. I, which people have said, why have you spent that much on a film? It's like, apparently the budget is 350 million. So if you take the usual three times, it needs to be over a billion in order to profit. But he's also including all the additional costs that there's been for developing the technologies, because that's what he does before he makes any film. He spends years developing technologies and helping engineer equipment to make them look the best. And those costs from that will spread out over any future films, because he'll use them on Avatar 3. And if we get it four, five, six, et cetera. But considering that the first film passed two billion, I think it's very optimistic for him to think that this one, a sequel, will do. It's been, it's happened before. We have seen franchises where the second film has taken significantly more than the first film. Pirates of the Caribbean, for example. Yeah. The second film, well, it blew all other ships out the water that year. It was a huge release. I remember having an argument before that came out with uh, my boss at the time. She wasn't convinced that it was going to be huge because the first one wasn't huge. And I was like, this is going to be massive. This is going to be a massive film. It'll be the biggest film of the year. She wasn't convinced. So at the end of the year, she owed me a fiver because uh, it was the biggest (laughs) film of the year. Everything that's going on at Disney on the run-up to Avatar is going to have some kind of impact on how Avatar operates over that festive period. It should do well, but will it be marketed to do well? Because again, as luscious and gorgeous as the Avatar trailers look, it looks beautiful. What's the story? Yes. Who are the characters? Until you engage. There's nothing to latch people onto to make them go, well, this is a different film than the first one. Because at the moment, it's just all all gloss and no substance. And it's another example of the marketing is just not right for the film that it is. Because Avatar is one that people always complain that the first film had no story. So surely, to convince people to go back for this one, people who've been cynically saying that "Uh, it's not all that, you need to let them know that the story in this the marketing should have focused around it rather than just like, oh, look, we've made another cartoon with Smurfs. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, on other news, way back in September, uh, we learned that director Basim Tariq had departed uh, MCU's take on Blade, uh, which is to star Marishala Ali as the Daywalker Blade. But uh, the film hit a major pause, a shift in release dates, yep. uh, a, a page one rewrite and no director. Anyway, that's all changed because a replacement has been found in the shape of 71 and Lovecraft country director Jan Demange. And he's taking over the role 
at the same time, Emmy-nominated scribe Michael Starbury, who gave us When They See Us, has been hired to pen a brand new script for the feature. So the starting from fresh. Marashala Ali is still attached to Star as the Daywalker. And he was apparently personally involved in selecting the new writer. With them losing the original director, it probably makes sense to just restart from scratch because yeah. you know you don't want to be picking up someone else's vision and end up with a clash of ideas, especially when it's something that there's a lot of anticipation around. There's a lot of hope from the fan base. And it's it's basically an introduction of a darker edge to the MCU. We've had some elements of darkness, particularly through the TV shows. But Blade is the first big project, which should be really dark. The intention is to make it dark and gritty in tone and more in line with the very fondly remembered Wesley Snipes films, which at some point we will have to deep dive. We'll have to. And that has a release date of the 6th of September, 2024. But who knows at this stage? Um, Just staying with Marvel for a, a brief moment. Uh, did you see the news that uh, Christopher Hemsworth is taking some time off from filmmaking due to a, a discovery he found in his uh, bloodline? Uh, yes, this will be the news that Chris Hemsworth has had has gene tests which have revealed that he's got two copies of what's known as the APOE4 gene, which is something that can increase your risk of Alzheimer's. Um, having one copy of the gene increases your risk two to three times. Two copies increases your risk 10 to 15 times. But here, the, the key here is risk. Having one or more copies of the gene doesn't guarantee that you'll get Alzheimer's. But, you know, it, it can be quite a hard shock. I mean, I, I've spoken on the show in the past that we've got Alzheimer's in our family tree. And, you know, I've, I've jokingly referred to it and just said that, you know, me and my mum have said that we're going to draw up lists of films that we love so that we can watch them for the first time again at some point. And, you know, it's easy when you live with it and you've yeah. seen it with people close to you to kind of be offhand and jokey about, well, I might get it because I'm accepting of the fact that I'll probably get Alzheimer's at one point. I will probably go that way. And as much as it horrifies me, I have to just accept that. But to find out and never have it in the family tree and never really know, and then be hit with that news. I can understand him wanting to wanted to step away from work for the moment while he gets himself back in gear. And he's also using the time to share his concerns about developing it and reminding people about health issues around it and raising awareness of Alzheimer's. He discovered it while filming the series on Disney Plus Limitless, uh, which I've not seen yet, but it's, it's on my to-do list. Uh, Hemsworth also talked about the Mad Max Fury Road prequel, Furiosa. Uh, how he was pretty much daunted when he first got the script. And then uh, once he started shooting it, uh, he was totally in awe of the script. And it's the most beautiful thing that he's ever read. But he found it a particularly daunting experience. And also he's playing the bad guy. But he was worried that he was going to screw it up. So we'll wait and see. He also mentioned very briefly that if he was to return to Thor, then he thinks it's time for the series to go in a different direction uh, away from the Taiki Watiti take on it which has been certainly successful with Ragnarok but I think we all agree that we want to see something a bit different next time and the thing with Thor is you could go anywhere you could go dark and gritty yeah. next time and do something very very different and unusual again yeah we've had too much humor maybe with the last Thor film not completely it doesn't have to be like you know somber and reflective and you know oppressive 
it can be dark with light touches of humor because all the best horrors let's be honest they all have that light touch of humor even though they're dark stories i'd like to see thor step into that more serious approach i enjoyed the fun of jokey thor but it got a bit too much by the end yeah let's see what the future holds hey Sticking with Marvel again, Spider-Man 2099 is effectively going to become the team leader in Across the Spider-Verse. Okay. Phil Lord has said that the sequel will see the character emerge as the multiverse leader of the team of Spider-People, a team that's lacking focus. In his words, Miguel O'Hara is the leader of a band of fighters that are trying to clean up the consequences of the Collider explosion at the end of the first movie. And as you can imagine, it's really hard to lead a bunch of people who have never been led. Earlier this year, it was revealed that uh, Miguel would be making no jokes during his time on the screen. He's going to be a very serious Spider-Man, which makes will make for a stark contrast with all the various Peter Parker wisecrackers and Spider-Pig around him. Russian Dolls, Greta Lee, voices his character's AI in the film. Those who know the Spider-Man 2099 character know he has an AI companion, which is basically a personal assistant because he's from the future. He's from 2099, which seems so far away when that comic first landed. <laughs> <laughs> now, it doesn't feel that far away. Uh, but we'll get to see all the various spider personalities taking on the villain, The Spot, voiced by Jason Schwartzman in this second film. I am so looking forward to more Spider-Verse because that first film is still... It, oh, I can go beautiful. back and rewatch it and just fall in love with it again and again. They've also said that the second film and the third film are going to be even more creative with their animation styles, with varying animated styles being used throughout. So artistically, it's going to be stunning. Harrison Ford has explained his reservations about returning for another Indiana Jones movie. Uh, basically, he said, I didn't feel it necessary to do another one. I just thought it would be nice to see one where Indiana Jones was at the end of his journey. And if you read a script that came along and it made him feel like it extended the character in some way, then he was on. He says, this one's full of adventures, full of laughs, full of real emotion. And we do know that there will be a de-aging sequence which sets the film in the 1940s. And this week we saw some stills of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who's playing Indy's goddaughter, Helena. Uh, she's a mystery and a wonder, and we'll find out why. And now, at last, I'm finally getting really interested in this new movie. I'm still holding back on getting excited. I don't want to be stung again. There's, there's a lot to be optimistic about, the director... The story sounds good. The cast are great. I'm just, I'm just holding off on the excitement. I don't want to be heartbroken again. I'd rather go in feeling, being pessimistic and then coming out with tears in my eyes going, that was beautiful. Uh, so fingers crossed it's going to be something beautiful and a great little send-off for Harrison Ford's indie. So sticking with, with Lucasfilm, Ryan Johnson, while promoting Glass Onion, has been talking about the, the progress, or should we say lack of, on his proposed Star Wars trilogy, that this is something that's been in the back burner for, what, four years, five years? Five years. I don't think we'll ever see it. The films appear to have vanished, but Star Wars is now proving successful on the small screen, which Johnson has, has now said that he'd be happy to work within. In his words, I would do a Star Wars anything, and if I had an idea that I was excited about that worked better as a show than a movie, I'd do it that way. At the moment, we're in between making the next Benoit Blanc movie and thinking about Poker Face, I keep getting together with Kathy Kennedy and having conversations. Who knows? Making The Last Jedi was the best experience of my life, so I should be lucky. So the, the conversations with uh, Kathleen Kennedy are still going on. So it is potentially still in the pipeline. But could his trilogy turn into a series? 
We know at the same time that Kathleen Kennedy has now apparently mapped out the next five-year plan for Star Wars, which it's hoped details will be revealed at Brazil's CCXP event this week, where a Lucasfilm panel is in attendance. So hopefully we'll start to find out what's happening, particularly with regards to the big screen for Star Wars, because it seems weird for something like Star Wars to just be small screen adventures these days. I mean, the great adventures, but Star Wars should be on the big screen. Angelica Houston is joining the John Wick spin-off Ballerina. We saw her in John Wick 3, where she met, apparently, what looked to be a grisly end. So I'm guessing this is some kind of a flashback. And Teresa Palmer has joined the cast of Andy's much-anticipated The Fall Guy movie. (laughs) currently rolling in Australia. Fall Guy is one of my most anticipated movies coming up, as is Greta Gerwig's Barbie, which we've not mentioned on the news for quite a few weeks now because it's been a bit quiet there. We have seen the set costumes, you know, the the garish look. Much of the chatter has been about Margot Robbie as Barbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken, along with their fashion choices. But one person who's also in it, who hasn't really been spotted much during the project filming, is Will Ferrell. No, he was in it. Yep. In a recent interview with the Wall Street Journal, he's revealed that his role is that of a fictional CEO of Mattel, with his character said to be insensitive and weird. He tells the outlets that Greta, Greta Gerwig's script drew him to the project. It is, in my humble opinion, the ultimate example of high art and low art. It's a loving homage to the brand, and at the same time, couldn't be more satirical. Just an amazing comment on male patriarchy and women in society, and why Barbie's criticised, and yet why every girl still wants to play with Barbie. Boy, when I read it, I was like, this is fantastic. He's made me even more excited for this film, as if my expectations level... It sounds like he's describing exactly what I was hoping it to be, a fun satire um, and social commentary, as well as just being like a day glow, colours, and 80s look, eighties vibe film. Um, it's believed that actors like Simu Liu, Shooty Gatwa and Issa Rae, among others, are playing variations of Barbie dolls in the films, with other cast members potentially playing Mattel employees. Gerwig teased over the weekends that Gosling will sport multiple looks for the film. And the film also starts Kate McKinnon, who I do love. Um, Emerald Fennell, who I do love. America Ferreira, let's be honest, all of this cast I love. America <laughs> Ferreira, Alexander Shipp, Kingsley Benadir, Sharon Rooney, Scott Evans, Rita Aria, uh, Jamie Dimitru, Michael Sarah, Harry Neff, Emma McKee, and Connor Swindles. It's a great cast lineup. It looks like it's going to be fun and it's going to have satire according to Will Ferrell. So, you know what? Sign me up twice for this film. <laughs> Set the date for December the 22nd. Yes, a day before Glass Onion lands on Netflix. Jump onto the Paramount Plus streaming service and watch this year's biggest film. Top Gun Maverick is landing on that service. So, um, it's going to be a great Christmas for the streaming services this year. And speaking of streaming services, there's been excitement within the cinema exhibitors this past week as retail giant Amazon have announced that they plan to spend more than $1 billion per year to produce movies for theatrical release. Yes, a streaming service is committing to theatrical releases. It was always going to happen. It was always going to happen. We've known over the past few years that Amazon have been skirting around the idea of like big screen releases. And they've done some limited runs on a few of their films in the past year and a half basically since po- since lockdown. But this now marks the largest commitment to cinemas by an internet company, with the plan being to release 12 to 15 films annually using this method, which puts it on par with major film studios. The company is reportedly still sorting through its strategy 
and we'll release a smaller number of films in theatres next year before it starts to up the output year on year. It's been seen that traditionally streaming is the is the opponent of the box office, that we're in competition against each other. So it's nice to see, I mean, Netflix have done it with Glass Onion limitedly this week, but now we've got a major streaming service who are going to be supporting the box office industry hopefully with some decent product that's about it for the news and but sadly and and we hate doing this uh some sad losses to the world of film one which is a, a personal one which i'm going to mention first eric fleischman who you won't know he was uh, a tv personality he was known as eric the trainer he was a fitness instructor to the stars did a lot of movie stars got them into shape uh, set performance goals for people like Ethan Serpley, uh, Rachel Crow. He was very, very well, well known. Somebody I knew, and he passed away on November the 24th. He leaves behind his wife, Alicia, who also knew, son, parents, close family, uh, and we are deeply saddened by this event. Eric was larger than life. He looked like He-Man in every way. Uh, he was a he celebrated life, uh, people who worked with him, the uh, stars. I worked with him, and I've never been in better shape. It was an, an absolute whirlwind of a personality, and it's a very, very sad loss. And another sad loss is uh, the announcement of Irene Cara, who died at the age of 63. Best known for the singing the songs from fame in which she appeared and Flashdance, which was one of the biggest films of the 1980s. Yeah, she rose to fame playing Coco, the student with ambitions of becoming a star in fame, for which she also recorded the hit title song. The song won the Oscar for Best Original Song. Cara's solo number from the film Out Here On My Own also scored a nomination. And she then scored an even bigger hit with the song Flashdance, What A Feeling, for the 83 romantic drama and box office hit Flashdance, about a dancer dreaming of being a ballerina. That song, again, won the Academy Award for Best Original Song and a Grammy Award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance. She also starred in other films such as City Heat alongside Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood and Certain Fury with Tate Moneal. That early 80s was, the, it's the peak of her career that put her onto everyone's radar and into everyone's hearts. Uh, her music was fantastic uh, and she was just a, a great 80s celebrity that certainly impacted on a lot of us who lived through that that decade she's uh gone uh, and will sadly be missed but her her songs are absolutely eternal we will certainly remember her name and that's the news this is the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks and if you're enjoying this particular episode of this podcast there are well a ton more that you can listen to if you haven't already subscribed all you have to do to do that is head over to your favorite podcast platform, search the film file, hit the like button and subscribe. And remember, leave us a message. But there are other ways you can keep in touch with us. So many ways. You can keep in touch with us via social media platforms. Just go onto any social media platform. Do a search for Film File UK. If we're on there, we'll pop up on there. Uh, you'll get updates on when new content drops. And you'll be able to interact with us, even though we don't post out a lot on a few of them. If someone does directly contact us, we will reply through there. You can mostly find me engaging with people on Mastodon at the moment after migrating away from a certain bird app. You can also 
contact us directly. You can send us an email with any thoughts, suggestions. We're getting close to the end of the year. Let's find out what films have most impacted on you this year. What films meant something to you? What films you think everyone should have seen? Send an email to podcast at filmfile.uk. Get in touch with us and uh, we'll include your musings on the show. Indeed we will. And you can also join us on No Barriers Radio every Thursday from 8 o'clock. That's nobarriersradio.com for a special hour version of the film file. Unlike the rambling 20-hour version that you're listening to, director's cut version right now, because we just go on and on and on and on. Forever and and ever (laughs) and ever. So... It's now time for this week's Deep Dive. And this week, we're going to be looking at adaptations of Charles Dickens' 1843 novella, A Christmas Carol, one of the best-loved Christmas stories of all time. Ah, humbug. He was the greediest man alive. It's Ebenezer Scrooge. Until the night he met someone extraordinary. Hello. The Muppet Christmas Carol. I'll drink to Mr. Scrooge, even though he is odious and stingy and badly dressed. Humbug. Oh, there goes Mr. Humbug. There goes Mr. Grin. Do you think it's safe for us to be up here? Ah! It's a game of prize for being me. The winner would be him. Yes, Mr. Cratchit. If you please, Mr. Scrooge. The bookkeeping staff would like to have an extra shovel full of coal for the fire. Where How would the bookkeepers like to be suddenly... Not that this story needs any introduction, but just in case. A Christmas Carol is a story of Ebenezer Scrooge, a greedy miser who, well, hates Christmas. but is transformed into being a caring, kindly, loving person through the visitation of four ghosts. His partner, Jacob Marley, the ghost of Christmas past, present and future. This classic work has been dramatized and adapted so many times in literally every medium available. And a new version appears every year. In fact, Netflix are about to launch a new animated version. But this week's Deep Dive, we're going to be looking at three, what we consider to be our favourite Christmas Carol adaptations. When when it was suggested, because over the Christmas period, over the festive period, we're going to do a few festive themed deep dives. And obviously you have to tackle a Christmas Carol at some point. But it's like, it was one of them that when I first thought of it, it was like, where do you start with this? Because there's a short British film from 1901 called Scrooge or Marley's Ghost that is the earliest surviving screen adaptation of this. And in total, of films that have been released, there's at least 21 feature films, at least 11 animated feature films. And that doesn't include the multitude of TV offerings or anything that's been inspired by the tale, because you've also got, to some degree, you could say It's a Wonderful Life is interpretation. Yeah, it takes that same looking at how one person's life can impact on others in such huge ways. Uh, There's been... Every sitcom has done its own interpretation of A Christmas Carol at some point. Even Beavis and Butthead has done the Huh Huh Humbug episode way back in 1995. Blackadder's covered it. Yeah, where do you start with A Christmas Carol? We could do a deep dive that covers every adaptation. 
and it would be about 20 hours long and I'm not sure people would tune in for it. Um, so that's why we decided to pick out what we consider the definitive ones. And it's three very different films as well. I think we should start with, which I personally believe is the definitive screen adaptation of A Christmas Carol. And that's Scrooge, which came out in 1951. Uh, it's a British film and it starred the great Alistair Sim as Ebenezer Scrooge, produced and directed by Brian Desmond Hurst with a screenplay by Noel Langley. And for me, this is the version that gets it right in so many ways that other adaptations have, have sort of missed, which is the darkness connected to this story, as well as the light touch and a fantastic jaw-dropping performance by the late, great Alistair Sim. Yeah, it, the Alistair Sim interpretation of the role is the one that you instantly think of as Scrooge. It's the presentation of that character that everyone else will be automatically compared to. Even if you've not actually watched the whole lot of this film, you will be aware of Alistair Sim's role in it because you'll have seen clips of it. You'll have seen memes of it. It's one of the most heavily memed Christmas Carol interpretations. I think one of the critics, when it came out uh, for the Washington Post, uh, commented that he had he, it didn't feel like a more recent Christmas Carol adaptations, but it felt the way that Dickens would have wanted it. It's the way he wrote it. And that's what makes this film a definitive Christmas Carol adaptation, is that it, it pretty much does just take the pages from the book, presents them on screen, in such a great way, with such a strong cast. Mervyn Johns, Alistair Sim, Hermione Bradley, Jack Warner, Kathleen Harrison. I mean, some great names in there. And narration by Peter Bull. It's a great film. Director Brian Desmond Hurst had had quite a substantial career, but nothing had really stood out. He'd made cameos in films, but he'd also like be, like been directing on early English films such as Telltale Heart in 1934, Glamorous Night, The Tenth Man. 30s, he was very prominent, but he kind of never really found that one film to put his name on the map until this film came along. And he, he just feels like he, he knew the source material. It feels like he was someone who had immersed themselves in the source material because the, the look of the film as well just looks perfectly Dickensian throughout. It is a very dark film. And in fact, I remember seeing this as a child uh, and being scared, uh, especially Ooh. I think it was in the Ghost of Christmas Present sequence. And it was, uh, I found it quite upsetting at the time. He, he captured that uh, 19th century uh, grimness that was in all of uh, Dickens' story about poverty, uh, depression uh, and ignorance. And he wasn't afraid of bringing that to the screen. But that somberness that runs through the film means that the film ends up on an uplifting note when we see uh, Scrooge transformed into a, a better man. But it is a much darker take than we than we are used to. And it's the joy that Alistair Sim brings to the role that stops it becoming too grim, in fact. Yeah. All the journeys that they take through past, present and future are very dark and very bleak and very depressing at times. Yeah, a quite realistic take on it. Yeah, but this makes for that the, the ending to work so much better. You know, you genuinely get the feeling that there's no glimmer of hope for the redemption of Scrooge throughout it. And then, you know, 
spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, surely everyone knows that in the end, Scrooge realizes that he needs to change. He needs to be a better person. And seeing his son change a personality, it makes it much more impactful that the film does end on that joyous note. And it makes you question like the thing, the mistakes that you've done in the past that you can maybe remedy. And that, you know, it, it's one of those films that by the end of it, you want to go up to everyone who your father fallen out with and just give them a big hug and tell them like everything could be fine and walk away. It's a joyous, uplifting finale to what is quite a, a grim and oppressive take on the story. I've not. I'll admit that I've not watched rewatched this recently. I know that normally for the deep dives I rewatch them before the deep dives, but it's not December yet, so I'm refusing to watch any of these films. But it's a film that I've watched so many times, and it is on my list for watching again over this next month. If you're looking to watch it, and I thoroughly urge you, if you've never seen this adaptation, to give this one a shot. If you've seen all the others, I don't care. You already know the story, but you haven't known the deep aspects of the story. I couldn't agree more. So we're going to jump ahead now to 1988 <laughs> for a very different take on A Christmas Carol. Directed by Richard Donner, it stars Bill Murray, and you've already guessed it, it's Scrooged, yeah. in which Bill Murray plays Frank Cross, a cynical and, yes, selfish television executive who is visited by a succession of ghosts on Christmas Eve with the intent of helping him regain his Christmas spirit. The film also stars the great Karen Allen, John Forsyth, Bobcat Goldthwait, Carol Kane, Robert Mitchum, the much-missed Michael J. Pollard and Alfreya Woodward. And this take grossed over 100 million worldwide at the box office. And you know what? I think you're going to love this film more than I do. <laughs> I'll admit to saying that when I first watched this, when it came out, I got tucked to the cinema to see it and kind of enjoyed it, but I didn't understand why people loved it. So everyone else was raving about it. They were saying it's one of the best films that they've seen all year. And I was like, uh, was it? I'm not sure. But it's one that's grown on me the more that I've rewatched it. Directed by Donna. And I do have a lot of love for Donna. And, you know, not only have you got Bill Murray, you've got Karen Allen in there. You've got Bobcat Goldthwait, who I, at the time, I was all over Bobcat Goldthwait. Uh, I, I love what he brings to films. Robert Mitchum. I mean, it's, again, great cast lineup. And you've got a music score from Danny Elfman. I love the satire of it. I love that it's taken a stab at the television and film industry. I love the tease of a Lee Majors action film. We get to see that how, like, you know, TV executives. And it, it's kind of, it, it's a film that is doing exactly what it's satirizing. It's making another adaptation of A Christmas Carol. But it, it points out that, like, around the festive time, TV and movie studios just churn out nonsense based on this story and draw it out. I love the cynical presence of Bill Murray. Bill Murray is basically playing Bill Murray throughout this. I mean, like he does in a lot of his films, he just turns up and does his own thing. And it works for it. I love the design of the, the Ghost of Christmas Future when he steps into the elevator and then it just rises behind him and like the big skeletal hand comes out. It's just... I think it looks great. and it, But like I say, when I first watched it, I didn't quite get what was so good about it. It took repeated viewings to fall in love with this film. And I did fall in love with it. I can't say that I love this film. I quite like it. I don't hate it. Hate would be far too much of a, 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 a the wrong term to apply to it. I think it's a bit of a mess. I think tonally, it's all over the place. Bill Murray is at his best for me when he's at his, his wickedest when he's at his meanest. But I just think it just about scrapes through. I'm a big fan of Richard Donner. Uh, and this film had 
all the Richard Donner gloss that he brings to everything he 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 made. But I I think he's got a it's got a, a conflicting tone and a conflicting vision. And and while it's nice and cynical, and I like the the updates to Dickens' story, it it just doesn't land. And especially when it gets mawkish towards the end, uh, in a way that the Alistair Sim version doesn't. Uh, when once the sentimentality seeps into it, it feels like the the film takes a, a different step, and and it's one that. I don't quite see the overarching love for this film. I've got friends who watch Scrooged every year mm. and they think it's a masterpiece. It just doesn't land for me. I think it's okay. May watch it this year just to show the child because he won't have seen it and I think he will get it. But it's certainly not a, a cult film for me. All, like I said, all the cast. I forgot to mention Carol Kane. Who got on my nerves. Oh, and, I, and I, I loved her as the ghost of Christmas presents. I love her energy in anything. Even in modern days when I see her. In the recent TV series, on The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, she's been a standout. She's always got that same energy. And I can get that she's one of those people that you will either love or hate because she always has that same kind of like, that New York annoying twang. Uh, but I loved her in this. I loved her in this film. Uh, probably some of the, like you said, that there's, it's, it doesn't quite gel. And most, some of that probably came from the fact that there was a lot of conflict on set between Murray and Donna while making it. Bill Murray had said that the script was so good, Donna kept telling him to do things louder, louder, louder. I think he was deaf. And he said that they had different visions of the type of film that it should become. And Donna said that he felt that there was pressure to kind of let Bill Murray kind of improvise around things, which he didn't like to do. Donna liked to stick to scripts. So it, it does feel that some of the elements that don't quite work in it is probably because of those clash of personalities and clash of ideas on set. For me, it works as the chaotic mess that it is. And it works as a great modern interpretation of the story, which whilst it doesn't use the ne necessary names uh, from the original Christmas Carol, it plays the same kind of themes. I've, I've got love for it. And it, this, it's not one I watch every year. I don't put it on the every year list. It's once every three years that I get round to watching this again. And this year, it's getting rewatched. One Christmas film that I think we both can agree on as an adaptation, a film that has real heart to it, is the 1992 Christmas Carol adaptation. Well, it stars the Muppets. Yes, you've guessed it. Directed by Brian Henson, starring Michael Caine as Ebenezer Scrooge. Alongside the Muppets, it can only be the Muppet Christmas Carol. This one goes without saying. It's... It's not a perfect adaptation of the story. You see, I think it is. <laughs> I really do think. I it think is. tonally it is. Perfect adaptation. Um, it, it it doesn't copy the story perfectly. It's not the finest version, but the music that it's added in and the levity throughout makes it such a great film. Not to mention the fact that we get uh, the second best Ebenezer Scrooge ever on screen. Yeah. Michael Caine is magnificent. Absolutely magnificent. He is enjoying every moment of chewing every bit of scenery throughout this film. And I enjoy watching him getting a chance to really have fun with a bunch of puppets. <laughs> I adore this film. I think it's a, it's a unique take, a, a very liberal adaptation of the classic, but it adds a lot of fun. And I think it gets a lot of the elements so right in it. And it's not afraid of going dark for a, a family film. 
it's it's lively. The attention to detail with the puppetry is marvellous. Uh, my favourite little bit, and it, it makes me smile every time it's on, is when we see the little Mises living in the wall uh, <laughs> and we see them a couple of times. And it's it's this world that Henson Productions could always produce. It was uh, It's the verisimilitude that they play to, that puppets and humans live side by side and no one raises an eyebrow. That's what I love. It's just got a, a huge sense of innocence. Tells the story perfectly, and it tells them with some great songs. Now, I've got to make it uh, uh, make a big point here. I am a huge fan of composer Paul Williams. He is one of my all-time favourite songwriters. I think the man is a genius. Uh, contributed to lots of films. Contributed to lots and lots of very famous songs. Recorded by Barbara Streisand. Recorded by the Monkeys. Recorded by David Bowie. Uh, he did the soundtrack to Bugsy Malone. He had a song featured in uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, one of my favourite Clint Eastwood movies. I think the guy is a genius songwriter. And the songs in this are never mawkish. They always hit home wonderfully. This is a soundtrack album that I listen to every Christmas. I, I'm not Me too. Me too. I'm not much not, for Christmas fits, Christmas songs. I find that a lot of Christmas songs are mawkish, uh, to use your phrase. But I can happily just stick this on and just absolutely just fall in love with all the soundtrack. Now, speaking of the soundtrack, there's one song that's been missing from the releases, and that's When Love Is Gone. That's right, because I remember seeing this film at the cinema, and I remember When Love Is Gone. And then subsequently, having seen it on the TV and a DVD version that I've got, I was realised there was a song missing. Yep. Well, over the past few years, there's been various to and fro in over whether or not this song is going to get restored back into it. It was not on the theatrical release and is presently missing from some copies of the movie, which is a real shame. Oh, isn't it? So, so I never saw this. It was only played over the end credits scene. Uh, right. end credits scene it wasn't made oh, as a full part of it edit out everything i've just <laughs> said <laughs> well it's one of them it, i mean the, the, I'm out, I'm, i'll keep in what you said because it's one of them where the mandela effect the, right because you've you've heard elements of it and you've been told that it existed your mind fills in the gaps and you start to believe that maybe you did see it and over time you build like your brain just goes yeah you did but yet it's getting restored Excellent. we're going to get it because over the past few years, it's become more and more a thing to try to get it in. The footage had been found by Disney archivists and was going to be included in releases. They missed the timeline for getting the 2020 release, re-release of it out. But they've got it for this year. And it's now going to be on the version that is getting a release at cinemas next month for um, limited shows and going to Disney+. Plus. I, I did see it and I saw it on a VHS version. That'll be where you it got a release on, on VHS version. So I knew there was a scene missing because I could tell you exactly where the scene's missing. Yeah. And then when I had the DVD version of it, it wasn't there. But this, this film, I mean, the humor in it, the humor in it's great. And I will always absolutely cripple with laughter at when they're complaining to uh, Scrooge about it being cold and wanted another bit of coal for the fire. It was like, how would the bookkeepers like to be suddenly? unemployed and then they're all just dressed in hawaiian shirts going heat wave <laughs> oh my island in the sun <laughs> it's just it's just a lovely lovely christmas movie a great adaptation of, of the classic it's the peak of the um muppet i mean the muppets films there's some great muppets films out there but this is the muppets film 
this is the pinnacle of their ones. I mean, Treasure Island was good. The original Muppets movie was good. The more recent yeah. Muppets film was good. But this is just, it's just something more. It is. Uh, and, and I remember when there was the very dark version, uh, TV version that came out uh, a couple of years ago mm. on the BBC, uh, which, which didn't land with audiences at all. And everyone said it needed more Muppets. Yeah. A quick uh, call out to a version I saw as a kid, which was always one of those childhood memories. There was a a 1971 version I remember seeing as a child, which I I always liked, beautifully sort of hand-drawn sort of style to it, which, uh, uh, again, is is one of my favourite versions of it. And then played to that dark side of it. I I never liked uh, the Robert Zemeckis film. The 2009 uh, Christmas Carol mm. starring Jim Carrey. Uh, I have a lot of problems with that one. And as I said, we have a brand new version, uh, Scrooge of Christmas Carol, coming to Netflix this year. So it's a story that is is timeless. And obviously we had Spirited, which we spoke about last week and disagreed on. But, oh, you know. I, I, <laughs> can't, I can't remember seeing that. I've cast it out of my mind. There's also been the films that have been derivative of it. And in recent years, I had a lot of love for um, the... Man Who Invented Christmas from 2017. Yeah, I've seen that. I'll, I'll give that a shot. Which was about Charles Dickens's own struggle to write the book whilst de- dealing with his own personal life with his characters. And Christopher Plummer was marvellous as Ebenezer Scrooge in there. It's a great little re- way to retell the story, but from a whole different perspective. This is a story that we'll continue to see more and more adaptations of. Every year, someone will make a version of it. You'll have a horror version. You'll have a comedy version. You'll have a serious version. You'll have an animated version because it's a timeless story. And it's a timeless story because, come on, everyone knows that grumpy Scrooge character. It's become so ingrained in our culture that we say, if someone says, oh, I'm not much for Christmas, we all say, bah humbug, because that's how, how much this story from Dickens has grown and become part of the public consciousness. Absolutely. Uh, so no matter which version is your version, people I can tell will be screaming at us saying, you didn't mention George C. Scott mm-hmm. in the TV version. You didn't mention uh, Patrick Stewart mm-hmm. in A Christmas Carol, which is much loved. But that's the thing about it. You've got your version, which you love. And these are ours. If you want to see these three that we've mentioned as the picks, uh, Scrooge, Crops up at some point. Hopefully, it will crop up on BBC or ITV over Christmas. But if not, the Film Z app, which has loads of old films free for streaming, it's on there at the moment with ads. Uh, Scrooged is on Sky Movies, and as I've already said, Muppets Christmas Carol will be coming to Disney Plus in its restored 4K and with that song put back in version. And we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy, what have you seen? I've seen two disappointing things and one really happy thing. Okay, start start in your happy place. I'm going to start in my happy place. And this week I watched Glass Onion, which by the time this show goes out, won't be able to watch it. But you'll have to mark a date in your diaries for the 23rd of December for one of this year's treats. Well, I'll tell you what, what we've said in our house is, because my my other half really wants to see it. So uh, that's one of the reasons that we didn't go to watch it this week, is that we were going to make it our Christmas Day film. That's the decision we've already decided upon. And yes, I'm looking forward to it. Andy, tell me that you loved it. Tonight, a murder will be committed. If anyone can name the killer, 
that person wins our game. This is truly delightful. There has been a murder for one person. This is not a game. The killer wouldn't hesitate to kill again. You must be really great at clues. I'm very bad at dumb things. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Lockdown was hard on Benoit Blanc. With no case to solve, he found himself lounging around playing online games with friends, which he struggled with the ideas of, and desperately needing a puzzle to solve, a mystery to unravel, a murder to tackle. When tech billionaire Miles Bron hosts a murder mystery weekend on his private Greek island for his friends, Blanc finds himself invited, much to the surprise of Bron himself. But it appears that the guests have brought their own little mysteries to the weekend, and events begin to play out that put lives in jeopardy and are sure to test the sleuth skills of Blanc. Glass Onion is a marvellous follow-up to Knives Out, and just like the murder mysteries that inspire Ryan Johnson, it can be watched on its own without any prior knowledge of the first film. The only constant here is Benoit Blanc, played, of course, by Daniel Craig. The rest is a whole new cast and a whole new mystery. A boy, what a cast. Ed Norton as Miles Braun, Janelle Monet as Cassandra, Leslie Odom Jr. as Lionel, Kate Hudson as Birdie, Dave Bautista as Duke, Jessica Henwick as Peg and Catherine Hahn as Claire are all given ample space to play and each of their characters brings something to the tale. And that's not to mention the plethora of cameos throughout, some of whom will bring a smile and some maybe a tear, including the unseen Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who voices the hourly dong of the island's clock, seriously. Not wanting to spoil any of the surprises in this film, suffice to say it's seeded with mystery and turns with a marvellously balanced approach. As one mystery appears to be solved, more backstory and clues reveal a deeper secret, and the use of occasional flashbacks to fill in story gaps and seed some further mystery works well to keep the film on track. The humour that we had in the first film is back and ensures the whole runtime carries well. Craig adds more layers onto his character of Blanc in this film, as we get a glimpse of the man he is, not just the super sleuth he was in the first film. His interactions with the rest of the characters reveal as much about him as a character as it does about the mysteries unfolding, and the end result is a marvellously entertaining mystery with a stunning cast and set in a lavishly shot environment. Roll on the third film. Okay, so that's your happy place. Watch your living under the stairs in the cupboard place. Um, I said a few weeks ago that I'd watch this film because I do have a soft spot for bad shark movies, but there's only so level, so much level of bad that I can take. I watched The Reef Stalked. That thing is stalking us. We have to help her. The next island, there's reception and people. Okay, what about boats? <laughs> for that island it'll come for us again it's not going to stop the 2010 film the reef based on the true story of a sole survivor of a shark attack in the 80s was quite well received with particular note made of the less is more approach of the film as a group of friends capsized while sailing and found themselves stalked by a great white shark that film cost around $3 million to make and generated $124 million in Australia alone. The Reef Stalked, a spiritual successor to that film, adopts the less is more approach in a unique way. Less casting ability, more mundanity. After witnessing her sister's murder by her abusive partner, Nick travels to a tropical resort with friends for kayaking and diving adventures. 
However, the group find themselves stalked and attacked by a great white shark and must band together whilst Nick must overcome her post-traumatic stress in order to survive. With the production values of an episode of Home and Away, the reef stalked looks and feels cheap and it lacks any tension or drama that the circumstances should naturally generate. The traumatic event at the start of the film that sparks Nick's PTS is so poorly presented that it makes the repeated flashbacks of it jar in an irritable fashion throughout the film, sadly serving to the detriment of the impact it was clearly intending to have. But this is a shark film, and let's be honest, we're here for the stalking and attacks, yeah? Sadly, a couple of decent moments aside, most of this film is simply someone yelling, it's coming, multiple times, whilst we see nothing but splashes of water. Whilst this works so perfectly in the ever-classic Jaws, and indeed the first Reef film did a very strong job of it, here the camera work is far too erratic to generate tension, and instead it dulls any pedal. It's a shame, as the ideas in this film are good, but the direction is what wastes it all. It results in a film that sits very, very low down in the pile of shark films. And boy, there's a lot of shark films. And strangely, everything you said about the reef, I am not surprised. It sounds to me like it's one of those films that quickly lets chuck it into an already established film and call it a a sequel when it probably had no intention of ever being a sequel. And the final film that I'm going to talk about is... Now, this was heartbreakingly disappointing. Because you've been looking forward to this for so, so long. When it was announced, you were uh, as giddy as a schoolboy to quote A Christmas Carol again. Yep, and that is Disenchanted. Once upon a time in a magical kingdom called New York, Giselle and Robert fell in love. But what if I told you that this wasn't the end of their story? I wish. Jumping jelly sticks, we got magic? My wish is turning me into a wicked stepmother. Uh-oh. Never fear. We will come up with something very smart at the very last minute that solves all our problems. Edward. What? That's how it works here. Disney's Disenchanted. Rated PG. Streaming November 18th. Only on Disney+. Plus. Back in 2007, Amy Adams charmed the world as Giselle in a magical twist on fairy tales in which the animated world blended into our reality, bringing with it all the tropes of the classic Disney adventures from a dashing yet dumb prince, an evil queen, a poison apple, helpful animals cleaning the home for you, fabulous eruptions of song and dance, and of course, true love's kiss leading to a happily ever after. That film became an instant favourite. It captured hearts and imaginations in wonderful ways. And it had us all stuck with Happy Working Song and How Does She Know rattling round her heads for weeks, if not years. When a sequel was announced, I relished the opportunity to catch up with Giselle, Robert, Edward, Nancy and Morgan once more to see how their lives have moved on since the first film. When the trailers showed that the tale would play on the idea of the magical land of Andalasia bleeding into reality and Giselle becoming a wicked stepmother as a result, I was even more drawn in. Maya Rudolph being added to the mix was just icing on the cake. Sadly, much like the video game Portal, the cake is a lie. This is a film that is desperately trying to repeat the charming success of the first film, but it all feels so cynical a cash grab from the offset, and all of the heart appears to have been left out. Giselle and Robert, played again by Patrick Dempsey, have a new baby, Sophia, as well as the struggles of a now teenage Morgan, here played by Gabriella Baldacino, no longer enamoured with the fairy tale princess stepmom that she has. Struggles with modern life pressures force them to move away from their Manhattan castle to a suburban area which looks like a fairy tale small town. And as the pressures of the move and the struggles in the new area weigh on them, a visit from Edward and Nancy, James Marsden and Adina Menzel reprising their roles again, 
brings an opportunity in the form of a wishing wand. Giselle wishes for her life to be a perfect fairy tale, setting off events that will threaten the two worlds, as well as their family life itself. Now, whereas the first film played smart with the setup, this one feels far too forced, pushing an idea seemingly out of nowhere in order to move things along. And from the start, the core cast all seem a tad awkward in their roles and dynamic. The breaking into song shtick is hammered in clumsily early on, with a reference to it happening, as though this hasn't been happening for the past 10 years of their existence. Adams tries desperately to capture some of the charm of Giselle from that first film, but is given very little in the way of material to work with. And her decision to use the wand, itself a far too conveniently inserted MacGuffin, is clumsily played out. As the world changes around her, it looks almost like the film would pick up with fun, but instead it rapidly spirals further down into mundanity. Adding in Maya Rudolph to the cast in the role of the head of the town council, Malvina, who becomes an evil queen, just overcomplicates the story. And whilst it does lead to the only standout song in the whole film, as Giselle and Malvina sing about who's the baddest of them both, for the majority of the time, it's not only an unnecessary extra villain insertion, but a complete waste of Rudolph's talents. The songs are, on the whole, unmemorable. And what they clearly think is the standout piece by Adina Menzel feels entirely derivative of a number used in Frozen 2, and so simply great instead. This was a huge disappointment, and it's not one I have any intention of returning to. After watching this, I revisited the original film to remind myself of why I loved these characters. But with Disenchanted, all the magic was lost. Maybe because when you get the director of The Pacifier, Cheaper by the Dozen 2, and Bedtime Stories, you kind of get what you deserve. Much like recent other Disney Plus sequels to older films, Disenchanted left me feeling disillusioned. I'm so surprised that you didn't like this. Now, I, I'm, I'm surprised because I know so many people who actually loved it. Oh, uh, those people need to be banished from your lives. Yeah, I, I know. I've, got, I've, <laughs> I've, got, I've heard of people who actually love it. So I'm kind of in a, in a strange place because I... Uh, I, I trust your judgments, even though we, we do we disagree do every now and then. And I think we're about to maybe uh, differ again. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, um, I, I will watch it and get back to you. I think it's the best way to, to say that. I, I'm going to try and stay with a, 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 an open mind on it. Uh, one thing we've both seen, though, is Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. I saw from what you put on Facebook that <laughs> it wasn't very special for you. It sounds like Christmas is a wonderful time, and Peter is so sad about Gamora being gone. Maybe if we gave Peter a really wonderful Christmas gift, it would make him happy. I'm Groove. Kevin Bacon, you're coming with us as a Christmas present. The Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special, now streaming only on Disney+. I'll let you uh, share your thoughts on it first. <laughs> I, I didn't mind it. I can't say that I loved it. I thought it was a film of two halves. Uh, I thought the first half with Drax and Mantis on Earth drove me nuts, uh, infuriated me because it was it was uh, poor slapstick. Uh, once we got Kevin Bacon to Nowhere, I actually changed my tune on it and liked it a lot more. So I found it uneven. Uh, I thought it was fun without being funny. I don't think I really laughed. What I did like about it is the fact that we've, we, we saw Marvel films that aren't 
in these TV specials that aren't world-breaking, that aren't about uh, a huge disaster that's going to happen. We saw kind of the lives of the Guardians on an average kind of day. Peter wasn't even that upset about Christmas because it had that nice little ending. Uh, and, and I hope they do that. I'd like to see more kind of smaller moments for some of the big characters. Steve Rogers on a date or, or Ant-Man on a date and that kind of things, which are, which are a lot smaller and a lot more personal than just being huge adventures. But I thought it was generally okay, but I thought it was, uh, I can't even call it a film, and, uh, a one-off that had two halves to it, and I liked the second half. Mm. But I thought I was being slapped in the face and trying to make me laugh when it, it wasn't funny for the first half. Um, as I posted out on social media, I haven't been this disappointed in something since, well, Disenchanted last week. I had the same level of utter dismay at getting to the end of it and just thinking, wow, I've just wasted time on something that I really wish I hadn't. This is the first time I've not taken to something that James Gunn's done, which is a bit of a shock. I love the characters of the Guardians of the Galaxy. I just didn't get this at all. I'm wondering whether whether it was deliberately made poor and cheesy to kind of emulate the Star Wars holiday special. Because I did like the fact that there was the, the two little animated segments were done in that same style of animated artwork that the Boba Fett that segment. Yeah. The Boba Fett segment of the Star Wars holiday special had. It was, you know, it, it kind of like was like, yeah, I, I, that's a nice little touch. But like you say, the the, the jokes didn't land. They felt really forced. It felt like it was trying to pressure you into laughing, particularly, like you say, for that first half of it as it's Drax and Mantis on little hijinks. Unlike you, you got to that midpoint and then it kind of flipped it and brought you back in. By that midpoint, that was it. Nothing, was going, to, nothing was going to retrieve me. I, I was so done with it by that point. I just wanted it to be over. Whilst uh, catchy little music numbers in there, again, haven't really stuck with me since, so they weren't really that catchy. Didn't mind them because I quite like the old 49ers. So um, I was okay with the musical numbers. Uh, I thought they were, uh, I, I thought what was impressive was Kevin Bacon's uh, uh, singing and playing. Which mm -hmm. I thought was, I knew he was a musician, but I thought he, he managed to pull off that marvelously. This was the lowest ebb for the Disney TV shows to date. And I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't exist. And it's it's not going to get rewatched. It was everything that I hate about schmaltzy Christmas all forced into one thing that should have been so much better. So you see, folks, we can disagree. And in this way, we kind of on we're on a bit of a grey area. I don't think we disagree at all. I think we've just come at it from slightly uh, different places. It, it redeemed it on the second half for you. But by that point, yeah. I was too far gone. You were gone. I checked out. So that's this week's releases. What's coming out this week? So, across cinemas, you've got The Infernal Machine. Uh, Guy Pearce is in this film, so of course I want to see it. You've got The Summering. You've got Goodbye, Don Glees. You've got Violent Night, again, on our list to watch. As mentioned, Muppets Christmas Carol has got a 30th anniversary re-release, including, hopefully, that additional song. Oh, just, just going to jump in there. Do you know there's a touring version of uh, a Muppets Christmas Carol that it's been shown live in theatres with a live audience? Uh, check out your local listings because it's happening across the country throughout December. Excellent. And uh, we talked about it last week. And it was, wasn't it bizarre that last week we talked about Casablanca and we'd had this in the pipeline for ages. And then the episode coincidentally went out on the day 
of the 80th anniversary of the film getting released. Oh, really? That was completely unplanned. And it only dawned on me when I was posting it out and I saw some, like another post go out saying 80 years ago today, Casablanca was released. But wow. it's getting a limited release across some cinemas in the UK this week. So grab your chance to see Casablanca on the big screen. On streaming, not a huge amount. On Now TV and Sky, we have got The Batman, which is one of the picks of the year. On Netflix, we've got the aforementioned Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, new animated telling of the already told many times tale. And there's also a documentary called Senior from Robert Downey Jr. about the life and career of Robert Downey Sr. Yeah, looks good that. I saw the trail. Uh, I'm, I'm in for yeah, that one. I'm in for it as well. And Disney Plus, you've got Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules, the animated sequel to the more recent animated movie. And finally, we get the TV series of Willow. And that's it for this week, folks. Uh, another film file delivered right to you by us but before we go and if you're a fan of the show well you know it's time for our neat things stuff that we've enjoyed over the last week whether it be a game a movie a meal you name it as long as it's neat it's our neat thing andy what's your neat thing for this week my neat thing for this week come on this was this was going to make the neat things at some point it landed this week all the episodes have landed i've watched the first few with my daughter and that's tim burton's take on the adams family also known as Wednesday. Right from the offset, it feels Tim Burton. And it shows that Tim Burton is perfect to be working on something set around the Adams family. Because let's be honest, all of his works look like the Adams family at some point. <laughs> it, it was always a I mean, even the Adams family movie was Tim Burton-esque. Yeah. It's always looked like it was something that he should have made. Yeah. But instead of just adapting the Adams family, what he's done, he's aged it a bit. And Wednesday is now attending Nevermore Academy, um, attempting to master some emerging psychic ability that she's got and thwart a killing spree and solve a mystery that her parents were embroiled in 25 years ago. And Jenna Ortega, as Wednesday Adams, is absolutely mesmerizingly magnificent. She is perfectly straight-faced throughout. There's barely a hint of emotion. Every now and then there's a little crack for the reasons of plot reasons, and it works a treat. But I noticed as well while I was watching it, she hardly ever blinks. And it, it's it's so great that she'll be, a, there'll be a long take on it. And I was starting to watch it going, is she going to blink at all? And I was realizing, no, she's doing that death. It's basically, she's stirring into your soul every time that she's talking to people. She's got that deathly stir. But all the cast are great. I mean, Christina Ricci, who was in the great two films from the 90s, She's in this as a completely different style of character altogether. And she's brilliant. It's brilliant to see, you know, the new Wednesday on scene with the original Wednesday. Catherine Zeta-Jones and Louise Gussman are great castings. Even if the rest of the family don't have a lot of involvement, it's great when they're on screen. Gwendolyn Christie's in there as the headmistress of the Academy. And she has, she's got a dominating presence on screen. I mean, the fact that she's six foot odd um, means that she's always going to have a dominating presence, but she's really good in it. Everyone stands out in it, especially the star of the show for me is Thing. Yes, a dis dismembered hand is the star of this show for me. <laughs> I love any time that he's on screen. And Thing builds up a, a friendship with um, Wednesday's roommate, Enid in this that just becomes an absolute joy to like to, as it starts to develop and starts to grow this is a great thing a great show i'm only a couple of episodes into it and i'm well and truly hooked i i'm interested in the mystery 
that's going on. I love everything about it. It looks great. It has the right feel. This is what we needed. You know, there's been other adaptations of Adam's Family. There's been animated versions. There's been films. There's been TV shows. This manages to do something fresh with the characters, but makes it feel like it belongs alongside them perfectly. I love it. Uh, my neat thing is still in the realms of TV, and it's the series Andor, which reached its last episode, all 12 episodes. We talked about this with episode one way, way back. Well, probably about 12 weeks ago, to be honest. Uh, and we both found that first episode very dark, a little bit oppressive, not much joy. And we weren't sure where the series was going to go. For me, it had it had a kind of a feel of a uh, one of those uh, uh, Danish noir type series. The way that it looked, the way that uh, it was... It was very shadowy. I stuck with it. And as everybody said, by the time it reached episode three, uh, it would become a different series. And boy, did it. This is a very different take on Star Wars, something that we'd not seen before. This was truly about the rise of a rebellion and what it costs to have that rebellion, not only uh, in human life and in your commitment to a rebellion, but the financial cost of what it takes to cause an uprising of something as huge as the Empire. And those ambitions were what made this show so intriguing. The way that somebody becomes, their life is, lives are turned around, that you hate your oppressors so much that you will stand and fight. Uh, the way that politically your life will be changed by your loathing of, of the Empire and what you do to make that happen. As it's grown, it's been a stunningly realized series, uh, looking still Star Wars, but earthy in a way that recent Star Wars hasn't been, and where you can feel the dirt under your fingernails, that living outside of the great metropolises of, of some of the other worlds that we've seen can be downtrodden, can be dirty, can be heartfelt, can be real. Mm. I think this is the first time I've watched Star Wars and it's felt real. Now, that might throw out a lot of hardcore Star Wars people, but that was my in. This is something that I wanted to see. I wanted to see a, a different take on, on the Star Wars universe, and this delivered. You had to stay with it. It was intricate. Uh, it was deftly woven political satire. It had a, a, a spy element to it. This was a... a a warts and all take on the nature of revolution set in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, Diego Luna was almost a passenger for the most of the series as he's led through this intricate world. But we had great turns, especially from Stellan Skarsgård as a very great area. We had the wonderful Faye Marzi as a character who is led further and further into the clutches of the Empire and shows bureaucracy at its worst. And we saw the rise of Mon Mothra as she has to make choices that affect her family. And we know ultimately where her storyline goes. This has been an absolutely jaw-dropping series. And when it got to the end, you can understand the need to join the rebellion. As I said, this is a film about cost. Cost to innocence, financial cost, and cost of lives and by the end, I was absolutely blown away. It's a tough journey getting there, but I think Tony Gilroy did a brilliant job 
and wove all the pieces together. And I can now can't wait for season two. Maybe I'll jump back and start working through it. If I can find time, there's too many yeah. shows. You've got to stay with it. You really have to stay with it. It was a slowish start. And then about episode three explodes to life. Uh, thanks to just some, some marvelous writing. But where it goes is uh, including one of the great speeches, TV speeches of all time, that I think should be in everybody's top 10 great speeches delivered by Stellan Skarsgård. And that is the end of this week's show. We'll be back again, of course, next week with more news, more reviews, pretty much more of the same, delivered to you in our own inimitable style. Andy, anything big on the horizon for this week? Uh, nothing major happening. I'm expecting to get home from work one night to find that all the Christmas decorations have gone up in the house because uh, the wife is clearly preparing for that because she's uh, reorganised the living room. And this means that uh, it's going to be the 1st of December, isn't it? I'm going to get in from work after my shift on the 1st of December and there'll be lights up everywhere and uh, Christmas is upon us. Bar <laughs> and indeed humbug. <laughs> I'm a fan of Christmas and I'm looking forward to it a lot this year. It's going to be a very different Christmas, which I'll probably discuss as we get closer to it. I'm a traditionalist. I think that you shouldn't put the decorations up until around, oh, about, me the too. 15, yeah. around about the 15th and then they come down just after the new year. Uh, but the wife likes to spend the whole of December watching a Christmas movie every day and getting into the schmaltz of it. I keep things simple. I like Christmas. I mean, I, I'm not a Scrooge. Yeah, I am am not against Christmas. I just feel that it doesn't need to take the whole month. I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. I I like a slow build rather than starting early. And I like to build up my Christmas spirits. Uh, We've got more Christmas stuff to be talking about over the next couple of weeks. Uh, We'll see you again next week. Uh, Couldn't do the show without the guy on the other end of this uh, microphone. Uh, Always a pleasure, dear sir. Aye, always a pleasure. It's something to look forward to each week. Well, because I know the story of Christmas Carol like the back of my hand, and I can prove it. See, there's a little mole on my thumb and a scar on my wrist, just when I fell off my bike. (laughs) It's gone into the the music from uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I I was going into Incredible Hulk. Oh, yeah. Oh, I see. Very similar. Yeah, the Lonely Man theme. That's where I'm going to go hitchhiking down the road. <laughs> of, of uh, freaks and geeks, of, you know, a new <coughs> of kids. Oh, I'm deaf. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, the prequel Furosa. The Mad, I'll start that again. The Mad Max Fury Road prequel Furosa. I'll start that again. Furiosa. <laughs> Furosa. The Mad Max Fury Road prequel, Furiosa. Harrison Ford has spoken about his... Uh, his penis? What was the one? Yeah, his... his, his Whopped it out, went. Bobbin, get a load of that. His bobbins collection. <laughs> he collects bobbins. <laughs> Harrison Ford has talked about his reservations of returning for another Harrison Ford. No, he's not. Speak, Lee, speak in English. <laughs> And this week we saw the first shots of his penis. <laughs> God, you got uh, little Harrison out again. <laughs> yeah. His little Harrison. He got his little Harrison out for the lads. You're listening to the film file, the film show for film Welcome to Sunday, people. 
you're listening to the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks and uh i don't know i've completely i'm gonna do the whole thing again <laughs> you're listening to no barriers radio and this is the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks i think i did that didn't i that's what i did i did the radio one <laughs> oh man, kill me now <laughs> Just put a bag over my head and take me out into the snow. The outtakes are going to be longer than the show this week. Oh, cheers. <laughs> I don't know, we're at an hour 15. Um, you're listening to us. I'll just do the hours. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, I'll come no in again. One <laughs> I've done the tea. I've done the radio one. And we can both agree the radio one has now been done. It's in the bag, Several baby. Times. <laughs> it's always not just copy and paste it from last week. It never changes. Because <laughs> we just go on and on. And on and on forever and, on. and ever and <laughs> I'll ever let you cut that wherever you like. Ever. <laughs> it's that uh, that line out of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. It's like a cable net jumper that just keeps pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling <laughs> and pulling. Anyway, deep deep dive. So socialize. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Bacon. Bacon's got some meat to him. Ha <laughs> ha. But now I hope it, that doesn't make the edit. It, <laughs> I'm sure it will. 